HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Appeal, helping you enjoy your fruits and vegetables at peak freshness and reduce food waste. Learn more at appeal.com. This week on Meet and 3, we look at the ways indoor and outdoor spaces are being reconceptualized during the pandemic to better suit new modes of living, working, and eating. It's brought a vibrancy and an energy back to the city streets that were so dearly missed during the height of the pandemic. This is about how we can grow indoors all year round uh, using proprietary technology that we've developed. How do I have someone understand, look, don't take a next to the June berries because you can eat those. That's free food. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to The Big Food Question a podcast exploring the most urgent questions from a food industry in crisis. I'm Dylan Hoyer, a producer for Heritage Radio Network. Today we're asking, how have New York City restaurants adapted to indoor dining? Most of New York State entered phase three of Governor Cuomo's reopening plan in July, meaning restaurants could reopen at 50% capacity. But in New York City, restaurants were only given the green light to reopen for indoor dining on September 30th and were limited to filling their space to 25% capacity. This change was highly anticipated, but it nonetheless marks a major shift in the city's dining landscape. Restaurant operators grappled with a range of obstacles, and many decided against reopening indoors for the time being. In this episode, we'll consider the many logistical factors that have compounded with policy to determine if and how operators have made indoor dining work for their establishments. This includes considering the size and layout of the space a restaurant has access to, their staffing capacity, sanitation procedures, and the attitude of their customers. Ultimately, we want to know whether 25% capacity, or even the looming possibility of 50%, is enough to keep independent restaurants afloat. Let's start with Dave Urbanis. I have a lot of things to say that, you know, colorful things, I'm sure. It's frustrating. You know, it's been a very frustrating period. He's the operating manager of Sugarberg, a tavern that serves food and drink in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Sugarberg closed its doors just before the citywide shutdown in mid-March and reopened for outdoor dining in June. This required taking a new look at their outdoor space, 
and confronting issues that, in a pre-pandemic world, were more easily avoided. The issue that we have being on this corner of uh, Metropolitan Avenue and Union Avenue is a very busy uh, intersection, a lot of trucks. It's a big truck route. It was really difficult for us to uh, try to figure out where we could put tables, but we were able to put tables on the on the sidewalk on the Metropolitan side. Well, we were not able to put them in the street. And then on the Union side of our uh, establishment, the sidewalk is completely slanted. So we couldn't really put anything over there because everybody's uh, product and drinks and food and everything would be uh, falling off their table. You can see why David was eager to reopen for indoor dining. The day finally came on September 30th. He reopened with a capacity of... The exact amount is 18.75. We rounded that to 19. This is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the precision required to operate indoors. It affects seating. Unfortunately, I've had, you know, groups of six, eight people come up and I, they're like one person over my limit and I can't seat them and it drives me insane. Tricky calculations have to be made with regard to staffing too. We have extra cleaning that we have to do. You know, we're told on one end, you know, staff as little as possible, but you have to do this, 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 and this extra. Even bringing back a former staff member requires retraining them. We sat down, uh, we went through all the paperwork, we said, look, this is what we have to do every time you come into work. We check your temperature, we go through these questions, and then we have to file all of this information away and uh, explained the capacity, explained what needs to be wiped down, how often it needs to be cleaned and disinfected, uh, and, you know, just different protocols that, you know, are added, you know, to our daily repertoire of running a restaurant, basically. That's if staff want to come back to work at all. But it was a waste of time, so to speak, because they were into it for a week and then said, no, I'm done. Walking this tightrope requires a new set of tools, too, which all come at a cost. The thing that a lot of people aren't realizing or, or don't think about in, in the case of opening and, you know, all these bars and restaurants opening and such is that all the little things uh, are more expensive. You know, so I need more gloves, but half or more than half of any distributors are out of gloves. And the ones that aren't, you're having to pay $60, $70, $80 for a case, which usually these things are around 30 maybe 40 bucks a case. So they're double in price. For the time being, David has been able to keep his doors and windows open to create more airflow. But as the weather cools down, he'll likely need to invest in a filtration system, too. And he's not alone in this balancing act. And it's like anything else, right? When you're learning something new, you kind of it just takes a little bit of time to to digest everything and see what we really needed to do. That's Truman Lam, the third generation owner of Jingfong Restaurant, which has an 800 seat dining room and banquet hall in Chinatown as well as an outpost about a tenth of the size on the Upper West Side. We decided, you know what, we should reopen Upper West Side first because it's a much smaller operation to see how we can run this thing and just give delivery a shot. The Upper West Side location served as a testing ground for delivery and outdoor dining over the summer and eventually for indoor dining in October. The location of Upper West Side allows us to do, you know, I think... 15 to 20 tables outdoors. So at least we can get some coverage outside. Um, And so I would say Upper West Side, the recovery was much stronger. This is due to a variety of factors. In Chinatown, Jingfeng Restaurant occupies three floors, and much of the space was previously reserved for events. On the Upper West Side... 
everything's on the same floor um, and it's literally, it doesn't really cost us any more to open indoor dining uptown because I only have, what is it, 15 to 20 seats up there. Uh, that's like four or five tables. So it doesn't really cost us anything extra to open the indoor dining. The Upper West Side is also more residential. As far as right now in Chinatown, it's just slow in general, right? This whole entire area depends a lot on tourists, office workers, and then, you know, just the general local community. So two of the three are gone. Chinatown was hit especially hard earlier in the pandemic. Anti-Asian discrimination spread quickly and widely before New York City shut down, inciting harassment and violence against individuals and leading to a dramatic drop in business at Chinese restaurants, a phenomenon we've covered on HRN's flagship show, Meet and 3. Actually, in Chinatown, what happened was we decided to shut down a couple of days before the state mandate to shut down because we had already seen, you know, I think by then it was a 60 to 70 percent drop in the business. Truman's decisions about how many tables to reopen and staff members to rehire are influenced by far more than local policy. Jingfeng's two locations have fared differently because of the size of the two establishments as well as their unique neighborhood landscapes. David's business at Sugarburg was influenced by the cross-section of streets he's located on and the slant in his sidewalk. Some of these factors may seem like bad luck, but restaurants with sprawling outdoor space shouldn't be considered the norm. Our restaurant company is in an incredibly unique situation where we have all this outdoor space and our indoor space is so vast that, you know, we were able to succeed throughout. Um, However, I do not feel that Other restaurants um, in Westchester, as well as Manhattan, are as fortunate as we are in that regard. This is Ben Libator, the director of operations at Fort Pond Bay Company, which owns three restaurants, two in Westchester and one on Long Island. Ben and his team members did a lot to innovate during the early days of the pandemic. We were on the forefront, you know, at least in in our humble opinions, uh, we were on the forefront of Uh, creating meal kits and a grocery experience for our community. Uh, We basically had that up and running within days of the the shutdown, you know, being announced. In Westchester, restaurants were able to host guests inside their dining rooms just a few weeks after they reopened outdoor seating. By July, restaurants were able to serve guests indoors at 50% capacity. Ben's teams at Harvest on Hudson and Half Moon threw out the old playbook and instituted new operation plans very quickly. A lot of the preparation came in, in like I said, the, the traffic flow patterns, um, setting up systems for sanitizing all of our surfaces, as well as any items that needed to be used from table to table, uh, like menus, for example, which actually started as all disposable menus. We went to uh, single-use condiments, you know, no more olive oil or salt and peppers on the table. Everything went to to single use. They also stopped taking reservations, hoping to encourage diners to arrive before and after peak times. But many of these new ideas were only possible to implement because Ben's restaurants have the space to accommodate them. He was able to bring back most of his staff because the outdoor patios at these restaurants can seat 100 people and there's space for diners to wait outside and enjoy a cocktail before servers are ready to seat them indoors. As winter approaches and Ben's outdoor space, although heated, becomes less appealing, 
he is rethinking yet again. We had plenty of room for guests to wait while they socially distanced and had a cocktail and a bite to eat while they waited for their full table. Our concern going forward is how we're going to do that in the uh, colder months. We won't have the luxury of having guests wait um, outside on our property in the colder months unless they come prepared with um, you know, winter jackets and gloves and hats. So uh, our biggest adjustment will be within the next couple of weeks. We have to decide if we'll be going back to a reservation system or if we're not going to reservations, how and where we can have guests wait outside of our bar and lounge space. After a short break, we'll explore whether current policy is enough to sustain independent restaurants without additional relief. This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Here at HRN, we care about reducing waste across our food system, from farms to home kitchens. We know that about half of the produce we grow ends up in the trash. We all want to enjoy produce at peak freshness and reduce the amount that gets thrown away. That's where Appeal comes in. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. It's edible, invisible, and imitates how peels naturally protect fruits and vegetables. Because here's the thing, less waste doesn't just mean we're throwing less food away. It also means we waste less water, energy, and other resources that go into growing produce. Appeal works with nature to reduce waste across the food system from the farm to the kitchen. Appeal helps us conserve our precious resources to ensure we have fresh food to meet our growing need. Appeal. Food gone good. Learn more at appeal.com. Welcome back to The Big Food Question. I'm Dylan Hoyer. We just heard from Ben Libator, who, due to policy in Westchester, was able to reopen his restaurants for indoor dining months before those in New York City. But what I've learned from these conversations is that alone, policy surrounding restaurant capacity is not enough to predict the success of the hospitality industry. Here's Truman Lam of New York City's Jingfong Restaurant again. It'd be nice to have the option to get up to 50% from 25%, but it really all depends on, on the, the customers, if they're willing to come back. In Chinatown, I could, I could have 200 seats right now, but realistically, I'm really only sitting maybe like 50 people at most. At the busiest time on a weekend, if they come in, I have maybe like six, seven tables worth of people sitting at once, right? And they're also super socially distanced because, you know, my dining room is 15,000 square feet and I have six or seven tables. For many diners, eating outside still feels safer. But as winter approaches, more questions arise for operators. The next thing that we're kind of concerned about is the weather change. Because we've been fairly lucky, I would say. So far this fall, the weather has been, you know, pretty warm. Um, once it gets, you know, into November and it's, it's consistently in the, the 50s and maybe in, even into the 40s, it's going to be too cold to sit outside. Um, and we're not quite sure how we're going to deal with it yet. David is optimistic that 50% capacity could make a vital difference in Sugarberg's profitability. I would say anybody that's set up like we are as far as, you know, just a straight up bar or even a bar that's a bar restaurant, uh, if you don't have a lot of outside space, 
you need 50%, you know, and you don't need 50% all the time because, you know, of course, no places, I mean, very few places are uh, filling their seats, you know, every, every hour that they're open. But 50% gives you at least the ability to fill enough seats during your busier times to make the money that you potentially need to pay your bills. To prepare for opening at 50% capacity, David is rethinking Sugarberg seating arrangements and purchasing plexiglass dividers that can separate tables in the case that enough patrons indoors cause them to be less than six feet apart. But Truman remains skeptical about whether the policy allowances are enough to bring plans into fruition. For instance, New York City is permitting restaurants to use propane heaters outside for the first time this winter. But... Number one, in Chinatown, we don't really have the space for outdoor heaters. And number two is we're not sure if the heaters are going to be even warm enough to justify setting that whole thing up, right? So we're kind of hopeful that the weather stays cooperative uh, and, you know, the case numbers continue to go down and there's no kind of second wave in New York and people feel more and more comfortable eating indoors. He recognizes how many unpredictable factors he's relying on. You know, we're allowed to have more tourists come back and we're allowed to have gatherings of more than 50 people, right? And if we get a slow ramp up and, you know, there's no hiccups along the way, then, then we have a chance. But that's a lot of factors that we said have to go our way. It would be ideal to leave less up to luck, but that would require a different approach from policymakers. Right now, the situation is definitely not enough. Um, I think there are certain situations where some restaurants can get by without additional help because, you know, they either have a, a really good lease or, you know, a landlord that's willing to work with them. Um, or they're in just a, you know, situation where a lot of customers are ordering takeout and outdoor space is good, right? But I would say that's, that's the minority of the restaurants. For our situation in Chinatown, we basically, we need more stimulus, right? There's no chance for us to survive unless we get another stimulus, another PPP, that can maybe give us another six months runway. David also feels Sugarberg hasn't fully benefited as caps have been lifted on outdoor or indoor dining capacity. You felt a little alone. You felt a little forgotten. You felt uh, you just didn't have the support, you know, that you would think that the city would give you based on the amount of money that, you know, this industry alone brings into the city. And I'm not just talking about selling stuff to customers. I'm also talking about uh, being able to support uh, employees and staff. But he is determined to remain a fixture in his community. I'm pretty uh, positive and, and um, on the whole, uh, the whole aspect of us being able to, you know, uh, get through this. Um, you know, I want to say we're New York tough, so to speak. <laughs> I don't want to be cliche, but, you know, we're, we're definitely trying to push through uh, and tough this out. We'll know more about what exactly the future holds on November 1st, when Governor Cuomo will reassess New York City's indoor dining policy and could raise the cap on indoor dining to 50%. One thing that is clear is that no federal relief is on its way for restaurants, as the Senate adjourned promptly after confirming Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, leaving the Second Heroes Act in limbo. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to The Big Food Question wherever you get your podcasts. 
Check back often as we address critical questions for eaters, operators, and workers across food topics and business sectors. If you have a question you'd like the show to answer, email us at question at heritageradionetwork.org. Special thanks for this episode to Truman Lamb, Ben Libator, and David Urbanis. The Big Food Question is produced by Katie Mosman-Wadler, Kat Johnson, Hannah Forden, Dylan Hoyer, Matt Patterson, Luke Griffin, and Jenny Dorsey. This episode's executive producer was me, Dylan Hoyer. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. The Big Food Question is powered by Simplecast. The content of this series is provided for general information only and should not be considered professional advice. You should obtain professional or specialist advice before taking or refraining from any action on the basis of this content. This project is funded in part by the Humanities New York CARES Grant, with support from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Federal CARES Act. This program is also supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. The Big Food Question is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio.